Good evening. How was his Spanish on Sunday? I heard he I heard he spoke in tongues. <clears throat> okay, all right. He did all right, did he? So that means he can come to Spain, right? <laughs> well, if he wants another lesson, he can. But he has to teach me Arabic. He's learning Spanish faster than I'm learning Arabic. So, how do you like my new sweater vest? Where's Sylvia? Thank you. <laughs> she takes care of me. Let's open the Bible tonight to 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. 1 John 5, 11. The word of the Lord says, And this is the record that God hath given unto us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this evening we give thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus for the privilege that we have to meet together, to be here. We thank you for this place that we can meet. We thank you for this family of believers and for all of the different testimonies that each of us can give of your grace and your work in our lives, how you brought us together. We know that if it wasn't for the Lord Jesus, we wouldn't be here tonight and, and most of us wouldn't know one another. But you've put us in your family. We thank you for that. And now, dear Father, we've come to hear your word. We've come to look into your word. You said in your word, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ. This is our prayer, that we would be able to hear beyond the human messenger your voice speaking to us, that you would minister your word to us, that you would build us up in the faith and encourage us so that we may have strength to go on and live for you until you come to take us to heaven to be with you forever. And so we commit ourselves and our time, the study of your word, into your hands. We pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. We know that he illuminates us. He enables us to understand, and we pray that he would do that. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We know that we are nothing without him. He is the vine, and we are nothing but branches. That's all we'll ever will be. And we're thankful to be branches. We're thankful to be connected to the vine. We thank you for him. We know that separated from him, we are nothing and nothing can we do. And so we come to you in complete dependence upon you tonight. And we ask you to be with us and to teach us and to work in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I want to speak to you tonight about the subject of eternal security. The eternal security of the person who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can a Christian lose his salvation. Can a person who has been saved do something or say something or get into some condition or position in life where everything is thrown away and lost? You know, one time I went to a, sometimes when I travel I have to rent a car and I went to a car rental agency at the airport and I pulled out my wallet because I remembered I had a coupon and it was supposed to get you a 20% discount or something and I fished around and I found the coupon and got it out and handed it over to the agent. And the agent looked at and he said, oh, I'm sorry, sir, but that expired a year ago. I said, what? And I took it back and began to look at the fine print on the back and it said, must be used by May of whatever year. It was the year before I was standing there at the counter. 
I never knew it had an expiration date on it. I mean, that was written in print. You'd have to have a, a microscope practically to read down at the bottom. And the big print on the front said, present this at any counter or whatever it was for a 20% discount. And the small print on the back said, whoops. And, you know, some people think about Christianity that way. Some people think about salvation that way. It's just too good to be true. You mean to tell me that I can trust in Jesus Christ and he'll take away all of my sins and then I'll be saved forever. All right, that's the big discount thing on the front. I'm going to turn it over. And what does it say in the fine print on the back? Because I don't want to get to heaven one day. And a lot of people worry about this. I don't want to die and present myself before God and then find out there was some fine print at the bottom of the coupon that I didn't see. And whoops, I'm not going where I thought I was. I'm not getting what I thought I was. Is it possible? Is there something, uh, an expiration date or void where prohibited by law? Or some, something in the fine print, some conditions that have to be fulfilled Yes, believe in Christ, trust in Christ to save you from your sins, but also remember that you have to do this and this and this, or else all of these uh, offers are void. Is there anything like that? Well, there have been people that have come along in history and taught it. Uh, Come with me to the book of Acts just for a moment. We're going to come back here to John 5, so you might want to keep a finger there. In the book of Acts, this began early. This was one of the early attacks on the purity of the gospel that was preached by the Lord and the apostles. In the book of Acts chapter 15, read in Acts chapter 15 and verse 1, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. And it says, When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other brethren should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So chapter 15 of the book of Acts really treats the question, Is the work of Christ on the cross at Calvary enough to save a person? Now, some of you may already know this, and others of you may be shocked to know. Now, I'm not going to talk at first here about um, cults and other world religions. Let's just talk about among professing evangelical people. Some of you may be shocked to know that among professing evangelicals, evangelical Christians in North America, many people in many churches do not teach or believe that a person can be saved once and for all. They don't believe that. They believe in some form the doctrine of the Judaizers. And the doctrine of the Judaizers, if we can state it in a very simple way, what they're saying here was, yes, believe in Christ. Christ died for our sins on the cross. Yes, right. But also, and there comes the fine print. If you don't uh, be circumcised and and keep the law of Moses, well, then you can't be saved. So uh, the work of Christ, let's say, to put it the way one person in a certain place said it, the work of Christ does 99.9%. And all we have to do is contribute 0.1%. That's all. Just our, and then he tried to say it, and in Spain they say, mi granito de arena. It's so humble. Mi granito de arena, my little grain of sand. It's just I just put my little teeny grain of sand. It sounds so humble. Christ did all of it, except I just need to put this one little granito de arena, this one little grain of sand. Do you know that that one little grain of sand, if it depended on the one little grain of sand for you to make it to heaven, you'd never get there. You'd never get there. 
And the scriptures teach us to be confident in the work of Christ and to know that we are secure in what Christ has done. The question, of course, is whether a person has really come to place their faith in Christ, whether they are a follower of his or whether they are following him a little bit or liking things about him or feeling things about him. People did that also in New Testament days, but not really trusting in him. And if you've come to the place where you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that he died on the cross for your sins, then the work of Christ has been applied to your account with God and you don't have any more account. It's not there. It's gone once and for all. This is the record, John said in 1 John 5, that God has given unto us probational life, conditional life. God has put us on probation. Is that what it says? It says God has given unto us. We haven't earned anything. God has given unto us eternal life, and this life is in our works. This life is in our granito de arena. This life is in his son. You see, it's just like taking a, a marker. Let's see. I don't have a marker here. Let's see. I must have something. I always have papers and notes in the back of my Bible. So you take a marker and you put it in your Bible and you say, the marker is in the Bible. Now, whoever has the Bible, oh, here's a marker right here. Why didn't I see that? I know I got those things put in there for something. Uh, whoever has the Bible has the marker because the marker is in the Bible. So the question is not, do you have the marker? The question is, do you have the Bible? If I have the Bible, I have the marker. And the question is not, do you have eternal life? The question is, in John 5, do you have the Son? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Not do you have religion. Not are you a church member. Not do you give tithes and offerings. Not uh, have you been baptized. Not any question that you can think of that relates to that little 0.1% that you could contribute in some way to Christianity or to your Christian life. Nothing about that. The question is, do you have the Son? Do you have the Son? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And many of us who are here tonight, and we wish it were true for everyone. I can't say if it's true for everyone who's here tonight or not. If you're not sure, then we invite you to be sure before the night is over. But many of those of us who are here tonight can say for sure. There's a time and a place in our life where we came to the place where we trusted in Jesus Christ and we repented of our sins. We realize what the Bible says when it talks about people as sinners and sinful well, we didn't generalize it anymore. We didn't say, yeah, it's a terrible world we live in. Never mind the terrible world and the terrible neighborhood. Think about the terrible heart. Because society doesn't do anything. People talk about the world and society as if that should be put in jail. But you can't put society in jail. It's made up of people. It's, it's what is formed by the contribution of the human heart, the human character to the world that we live in. It's us. I told you that story one time, didn't you, about the man who smelled the... What do they call that? Limburger cheese in, in uh, Germany. And he stuck his nose in a jar of Limburger cheese to smell it. And he got it on his mustache. It smells awful, by the way. I don't know if you know that cheese or not. Whew. It smells like something died. And he didn't know. He got a little teeny bit of it on his mustache. And all through the, the rest of the day, wherever he went, he said, these people, don't they ever take a bath? What's wrong with this room? Open the window. And then he got home at the end of the day and he noticed, oops, there it is. It was me. All this time, you know, and when the scripture talks to us about the problems that we have in the world, it's trying to tell us like that mirror was trying to tell that man. It's not everybody around you. It's you. You got it out of the heart. Mark 7 says the Lord Jesus says for out of the heart of man proceed. And he begins to name all of these things. And he begins not with deeds, but thoughts, 
thoughts. People who have never robbed a bank, people who have never committed adultery, who have never taken a drink. But the Bible doesn't start there. The Bible starts with evil thoughts. And you know every sin in the Bible, and hear what I'm going to say, every sin in the Bible you can commit in your thoughts. And most people think about things before they commit them. They've already committed it once in their thought. And if you think about a thing long enough and you dwell on it long enough, you're leading yourself to do it. The thoughts, the Limburger cheese on the mustache. So many of us have come to that place where we realize that the problem was not the world. The problem was not people. It was not society. I had a problem. And I had to come to that place where I realized that I was the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross. It was me. It was my sin. I still remember uh, when the, one of the first times I spoke with Mr. McDonald. He was teaching us a, uh, something out of the scriptures in that day. And he said, you know, he said it was a real shock to me to find out that there was enough sin in me to sink a battleship. He said when he was a young man growing up that what he was on the inside, he wasn't talking about things he'd done because he hadn't done anything. He was raised a a Scottish Presbyterian, and he went to church all of his life, and they lived a very strict life. But he said he came to realize one day, reading the Scriptures and reading about what the human heart is like, what our nature is like, he said, I realized that there was enough sin in me to sink a battleship, that what I am is worse than anything I've done. That, that ability to sin, that desire, and, and that breeding ground for it is in me. So you see, when the Lord saves a person, he doesn't just... Um, Erase the record of a few things that he's done wrong or that she's done wrong. It's a lot more than that. We talk about getting a clean slate, you know, but there really isn't a slate anymore. When the Lord saves a person, he works on the inside. He works on the nature of the person. He gives them a new nature. If any man be in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5:17 says, he is a new creature. He's a new creature. There's something there that wasn't there before. Now, in Seville, we have a lot of orange trees. And they, they're the bitter kind of orange and the ones that are out on the streets and the lining the avenues and that sort of thing. They're not really for eating. Someone always comes down and tries to eat them. The English come down and take them back to England. They love them to make marmalade. And they say they're good for that. Some of the Seville orange is one of the best oranges in the world for orange marmalade. Not good for much else. But now if we wanted to change those orange trees and make them bear something else or make them not bear anything, we'd have to do a lot more than just go out with scissors and cut off the oranges, wouldn't we? We'd have to do a lot more than go out with pruning shears and just cut off all the oranges because sooner or later another growing season is going to come and those little flowers that smell so sweet are going to come out. And pretty soon there's going to be those little teeny tiny green balls where the flowers were and they're going to start growing and guess what? Because it's an orange tree on the inside. And if you want to change it, if you want it to produce something else, you have to give it another nature. You have to do more than just cut off the fruit on the outside. And there are some religions in the world that spend a lot of time doing that, trying to arrange the fruit on the outside, and they don't do anything about the problem on the inside. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. So when we talk about a person who knows for sure that he has eternal life, I just want to make this very clear right from the beginning. I think I've been beating on that point long enough now. We're going to move on. That we're not talking about people who joined the church or people who had an emotional moment and cried a little bit or, or, or people who tried to turn over a new leaf and have a better life. We're talking about people who realized what they were like 
And they know that because of the sinful condition of their heart, Jesus Christ had to come down and die for us. That God demands death for sin. Death is the penalty and the payment for sin. And Christ came down to die on the cross exactly for that reason. He wasn't trapped and cornered and dragged off to the cross. He came to die on the cross. He said in John 10, no man takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it back again. And he did exactly that. So there was purpose in the coming of the Lord Jesus and there was purpose in what he did at Calvary. It wasn't a tragic scene in which all of his plans for ministry and kingdom were ruined by a few connivers and traitors. It wasn't that at all. The Lord Jesus came to die on the cross. He says in John chapter 10, uh, excuse me, uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5, that when he came into the world, coming into the world, he said, this is when he was born, coming into the world. I don't know how many babies say anything when they come into the world. A lot of them say, wow. But coming into the world, he had this communion with his father. To his father, he said, sacrifice and offering Thou wouldest not. You, would, you didn't want those. Sacrifice and offering. But a body you have prepared me. He came into the world. He was born. He took human nature, humanity upon him in order to go to the cross and to die as the substitute for our sin. He knew why he came. The Lord Jesus never had to discover that he was Messiah. He knew it when he came into the world. He knew why he came. He knew what his mission was. And he went to the cross to be our substitute, to die as the sacrifice and to pay the penalty for sins that we have committed for the wages of sin is death. And someone has to pay that death. And he paid it at Calvary. Isn't it a wonderful thing to be saved? And wouldn't it be an awful thing to, to just trust in the Lord Jesus and hope and pray that maybe my sins are forgiven and to go through all this life and to never know that my sins are forgiven and to never feel secure in what Christ has done for me to always be working and worrying and trying and doubting and to never be able to relax and enjoy your salvation to never have assurance of salvation that's when we know that we're saved and we know that we belong to the lord and security of our salvation is a little bit different security you can be secure whether you know it or not you are secure if you've trusted in the lord you might not feel it but you are secure in his hands because your salvation does not depend on how you feel. Justification, when God declares a person just or righteous, is not something that takes place in the nervous system of the believer. It's something that takes place in heaven. God declares a person to be just or righteous when that person deposits their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not an emotional event. It causes certain emotions in us. Who's going to doubt that? We all know it. But that's not the, the basis or the essence of salvation. It's not in our emotions. Those are secondary. The, the essence of it is something that takes place when God in heaven declares righteous, now forgiven and righteous, the person who places his or her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle John writing here, he says, This is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that has the Son has life, not conditional life, not probational life, no fine print. He comes right out with all the power and grace of God and just says he has life and there's no fine print. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know? Let's think together tonight on five pillars, not pillows to sleep on, but pillars like that pillar, like that column, five pillars 
of eternal security. Five, and maybe you'll find a lot more than I did, but I just want to think with you for a few minutes about these five pillars or columns of eternal security. What is our eternal security based on? We've tried to establish uh, to some length now that eternal security, the security of the believer, is not based on what he does or what he feels or anything like joining a church or getting baptized. None of us should think that we're saved or that we're going to heaven because of any of those things. Then what is the security of the believer based on? And how can a person know for sure and rest in that security? The scripture tells us, and let's look at the first one, in John chapter 10 and verses 27 to 29, the scripture tells us that the word of God is our security. The Lord has said in John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. The first reason that we can know that we are secure once we have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is because the Lord Jesus, simply because he said so, you have God's word on it. And when he speaks about the condition of those who have trusted in him, he speaks about it this way. I give unto them eternal life. Remember that song? God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. That's what we're talking about when we look at this. The Lord Jesus said, I give, not I rent, not I lease, I loan. He doesn't use any other word. It's a gift. We're living in a a particular time of year when people are thinking a lot about gifts. And they don't come with strings attached on them, generally speaking. And God certainly don't come that way. The gift of eternal life is given. It comes by grace. He says here, I give unto them eternal life. And as a result of that, they shall never perish. If any of those people who trusted in the Lord Jesus for their salvation ever perished, if even one of them ever perished, God would be a liar and his word would be false. But he gives a promise here. He gives his word. They shall never perish. I give. They shall never perish. And then he goes further. If that wasn't enough, he says at the end of the verse 28, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. I'm not going to give them up and nobody's going to take them away from me. And when he says any man, that means any human being. No one, he's saying, no one can pluck them out of my hand. Think about the tremendous security that's just here in the absolute terms that he uses. These are absolutes. Eternal is a word without limit. Never perish. Never is a word that's an absolute. And he says, neither shall any man or no one shall pluck them out of my hand. There's another one. And so when we deal with the question of eternal security, if I can rest and believe that once I've put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's it. I'm secure in him forever. What we really come down to, the bottom line of it all is, if we trust God, if we take him at his word, because he said it very plainly. And so it's simply a matter of trusting him and taking at face value the things that he said. You know, uh, let's see, I think I have this poem here by Martin Luther. In the back of my Bible, a lot of us know maybe the first part of it. Uh, Feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My faith is in the word of God. Naught else is worth believing. But there's more to it than that. He says, though all my heart should feel condemned, 
for want of some sweet token, there is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. See, it doesn't depend on what I feel from moment to moment. I might feel more or less saved, but I'm not any more or less saved than I was the day I trusted in the Lord Jesus. And it's a wonderful thing to be saved, isn't it? They tell the story of a man who was up way up north and where the rivers and the lakes freeze and he was walking home one night and he had to cross the river where it was frozen and he got out on the ice and then he started thinking, I wonder if this ice is thick enough. I wonder if this is frozen enough. I wonder if I should be crossing here. And then he got worried. He was alone at night on the ice and he thought, what if I step in a thin spot and fall through and I'm never going to make it? And so here he was creeping across the ice slowly and testing each piece of it and worrying and as cold as it was breaking into a sweat and he gets about halfway across the river and he hears this noise on the bank on the other side uh, something coming and he hears uh, bells jingling and people laughing and talking and pretty soon on the trail off of the trail comes a, a sled a sleigh being pulled by horses full of people, and they're all laughing and carrying on, and the horse's bells are jingling, and it goes by him on the ice, crosses a river, and goes off the trail on the other side and off to wherever it was headed. And he's standing there on the ice in the middle of the river looking, and he said, what in the world's wrong with me? There's enough ice here to support us all, and here I am tippy-toeing across, and there they go, just as happy as larks, not worried, and the ice is big enough to support all of them. Well, the ice is big enough to support all of us. We're secure in Christ. There's enough there. He can stand all of our weight. He can take us and hold us, and he's promised to do that. And so when uh, Martin Luther wrote this, it was because he was going through struggles. He said, though my heart should feel condemned, I feel it. I look at myself in the mirror. I know I'm not a perfect person. But he said, go back. Let's go back over it again. Let's see. God's word tells me that I'm a sinner. I know that I agree with him on that. But God's word tells me that Christ died for my sins. And Christ said that if I trust in him, I have eternal life. Okay. He said that. Now, do I believe it or not? Am I going to believe my heart that feels right now its sinfulness? Or am I going to believe what the Lord's word says? Though my heart should feel condemned for one of some sweet token, there is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. So you come to the place at some point in your Christian experience where you just relax like that man walking across the ice and you trust in the Lord. I'm in his hands. And he said, him who comes unto me, he who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. He's never lost a soul that trusted in him. Isn't that good news? He goes on. He says, I'll trust in God's unchanging word till soul and body sever. For though all things shall pass away, his word shall stand forever. That was 1546. This is 2004. So we're not the first ones and we're not the last ones that have to learn these lessons, are we? We're secure in the Lord. The second pillar of salvation, the power of God. First Peter chapter 1, verse 5. You can begin reading in verse 3 if you want to have a little context. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope or a living hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for us who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. We haven't seen the half of what God has for us yet. And here at the beginning of the epistle, 
the the apostle Peter just begins to praise the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what he's done. He's caused us to be born again. He's begotten us. He's caused us to be born again and to have a living hope, he says, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not by anything that we did, but by what his son has done. That's the cause of our hope. If the cause of our hope in verse 3 were, were anything that we had done, it would be like the sailor who, who in the middle of a stormy seas, he casts the anchor and it falls in the back of his own boat. You're looking for some place to secure yourself and you throw the anchor into your own boat. You can't throw your anchor into, the, into your own boat and have security. To, get, to, to be secure and to be kept from the raging waves, you've got to throw your anchor into something that's a rock that's going to hold it. So what kind of inheritance would we have and what kind of hope would we have? If we were depending on ourselves and what we do, if our hopes were anchored in us, but they're not, they're anchored in him, aren't they? I know at least in my case, I can say my anchors hadn't been thrown in my boat. It's thrown a long way outside of my boat. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled. It doesn't fade away. It's reserved for us. And how are we kept? Not by works. We're kept by the power of God. The Lord Jesus does the saving of the people that believe in him, that trust in him. And he does the keeping of the people that trust in him. He saves us and he keeps us. And when it talks about keeping us, it's talking about security. That we're in his grasp, just like it says in uh, John chapter 10 where we were reading. We're in his grasp and we can't be taken out. And when you think about that, back in John chapter 10, he said, No man can pluck them out of my father's hand. No man can pluck them, in the previous verse he says, out of my hand. So now, my father is greater than all. No one can take them out of my father's hand. No one is able to pluck them out of my hand, the Lord says. How's the person who's in the hands of the Lord Jesus and the Father ever going to be lost? Who's going to get him out? Who's got a stronger hand than the hand of God the Father and the hand of God the Son? And then if that weren't enough, then you have on the inside, that person is sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's triple security. He's sealed by the Holy Spirit who guarantees his salvation. And that's not on the basis of something he does or some experience he has. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it says, Having heard the gospel, having heard the word, or having believed, it says then, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were sealed at that very moment when you believed. You might not have felt it. You might not have seen anything or heard or any bells or seen any fireworks. Or you might not have had any tingly feeling because it doesn't depend on our nervous reaction or our emotional system. Our emotional reaction or our nervous system, I should say. It depends on the work of God. Triple security. We're kept by the power of God. People are always trying. I used to work in security in the Air Force during the last couple of years that I was there. And people are always trying to find some kind of an unpickable lock, some kind of security that can't be broken. The building we worked in, and uh, to this day, I'm not allowed to tell you what I did in that building. But at any rate, uh, we'd come into the building. There was a moat, first of all, a chain-link fence with barbed wire across the top of it. And then there was a big moat and a little bridge across the moat, and you had to cross that. And on the other side of the moat, another big chain-link fence with barbed wire. And then you walked up to the building, and there's a steel door there, reinforced steel door, with lights shining all at it, and a little box down there covered up, and you had to lift up the cover to it and put in a code, a numerical code, to get the door to open. So you go through one door. You're across through the two fences, across the moat, and you go through that first door. You go down a hall, and pretty soon you come to another door. It's another one of those doors, and you've got to put in a code there. And then you come to another door, and you've got to put in a code there. 
And then you're on the inside. And the first thing they do when you get on the inside is they check your identification badge to see after you went through all that and got in if you're really supposed to be in there. That's where I had to go to work every day. They were always worried about somebody messing with the security, somebody being able to trick it, somebody being able to sneak past it, somebody figuring out the codes. They're always working. They have these huge cabinets in there. They have all their documents in. They're always putting these locks, trying a new lock, trying to find some lock that can't be picked and they can't be broken. And of course, there is no such thing. But you can go on the Internet. I don't recommend that you do it, but you could go on the Internet and look and find a place where they'll, they'll sell you videos, I'm sure, that would tell you how to pick locks and how to break locks and how to, how to cheat locks. And, and any kind of lock that can be made, somebody can figure out a way to get past it. But there is a lock that no one can pick. And there is one that nobody can cheat and nobody can get past. When you're locked up in the hand of the Son of God, in the hand of God the Father, and sealed by the Holy Spirit, brother, sister, you're there for good. That's for keeps. That's the security that we have. We're kept by the power of God. It's an unbreakable chain, isn't it? So we have the Word of God. He's promised us in no uncertain terms that He's given us eternal life. He used plain language that we all understand. There's no duplicity. There's no uh, double way of understanding it. There's no fine print. He said it very plainly what he was giving to us. And then he says very plainly that he's keeping us by his power. He's sealed us and he's keeping us. So we have the word of God and we have the power of God. But that's not all. We also have the grace of God. The third pillar of the security of the believer is the grace of God. It's the way God deals with us as human beings. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. God's method of dealing with with human beings, is not on the basis of merit. It's on the basis of grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation by grace is the gift of God. It's not saying here that faith is the gift of God. Not even the Greek text would support that. The the Greek grammar would not support that. It is saying that salvation by grace through faith is a gift of God. It's something that God gives people who trust in him. The only thing you can do is something that when you've done it, the doing of which you haven't done anything, all you did was trust God. You trusted that when Christ died on the cross, it was for you. That you were the sinner that he died for. And you didn't do anything. He came to the earth. He lived his life on the earth. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. All we did is believe it. So he did all the work. And so he rightly said it, didn't he, when he died on the cross at Calvary. He said, it is finished. He didn't say, well, I did my part. Now it's your turn. I did my 99.9%. Well, I gave them a good shove, Lord. Let's see if they can pop the clutch and get that motor running. He didn't say that. He said, it is finished. His method with man, his method with human beings, with all of us, is grace. And we are never going to understand grace. But I'll tell you this, you better start believing it because it's true. Grace is unmerited, undeserved favor from God. You can't do anything to deserve it. And you know heaven is going to be full of people who don't deserve to be there. I'm one of them. Anybody else? The people I worry about are the people that think they deserve to be there. 
Heaven, heaven is the only society, the only exclusive society that I know of, that the, the one requirement in order to be in it is to not be deserving of being there. That's exactly how we're going to get there. He says, not of works, lest any man should boast. Boy, I'll tell you, nobody is going to boast when they get to heaven. Nobody is going to say, do you know how many times I went to confession and mass? Do you know how many times I prayed the rosary? Do you know how many times I gave alms? Do you know how many times I lit a candle in the church? Do you know how many times I went to meeting on Sunday? Do you know how many times I sang the hymns? Do you know how many sermons I had to listen to? Boy, I worked to get here. Nobody's going to have a sore back from patting themselves on the back when they get to heaven. Not of works. Not going to be anybody boasting in heaven. You hear these people say sometimes, I've been a member of this church, and I was raised in the South, and I heard people talk like this. I've been a member of this church for 40 years. And they got all their little medals there on their suit for faithful attendance at Sunday school and for winning the memory verse contest at vacation Bible school. They look like decorated soldiers. They've come home from a war, you know. And there they are. Forty years in the trenches at such and such a church. And you talk to them about the Lord and they don't have anything to say. It's all the church. And I did this at the church and I've been in the church. Well, now, the church, I want you, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. The church, the Bible has a lot to say and the New Testament has a lot to say about the church. But when they're speaking of it, in in this uh, phraseology that they use, they're talking about an organization that they're a member of and that they have faithfully served in. And they're almost expecting to get the gold watch at the end for retirement, you know. They have earned what they got. And we hear people say, a lot of times in Spain, they say, you know, I know I'm going to go to heaven after all the things I've suffered in this life. This husband that I had to put up with, this has been my cross to bear and the things I've had to suffer in this marriage, I know I must be going to heaven, they'll say. Oh, and people who are sick, they'll say, oh, that person, look at that poor person, look how sick and, and this ailment he's had or she's had all her life and there they go on crutches or in a wheelchair or they're in a bed or they have some disease that can't be cured. And people look at them and they say, poor thing. Surely by all that suffering he's going through, he's won heaven. Surely the Lord's going to take a poor person like that to heaven. But you know, you can be lying on a bed and you can be completely paralyzed. You can be a quadriplegic and you can still sin. Because in Mark chapter 7, the first sin on the list of the things that come out of the heart And defile the man. The first thing is, remember, evil thoughts. Evil thoughts. And we feel compassion for people that suffer, for people that are sick, and for people that are in a difficult situation in their life. Don't misunderstand me. We feel compassion for them. Our hearts break with them as we see the things they go through and the situations, the conditions that some of them have to live in. But those things will never save them. Suffering, those things will never save them. The only suffering that ever saved a person is the suffering that Jesus Christ did on the cross at Calvary. That's it. That's the only suffering that's of any value in God's sight. No one is going to say, I helped get me in heaven. The only thing I did was trust in the Lord and he got me there. That's it. Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. This is so important because the the teaching of grace, of salvation by grace, goes against every religion that exists 
in the world today. And it's what makes us, it's not that we have a corner on the truth. We don't have a corner on it. This Bible is sold all over the world in hundreds of languages. We don't have a corner on it. The difference between us and other people, if there is one, is that we believe what it says. We're not trying to build a system of merit in order to, like a ladder to get us up to heaven. It says here in Romans chapter 4 and verse 5, To him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Romans 4, and especially these first verses here, so important to understand because it is the doctrine of salvation by grace. And that means very simply this, as he says in, the, in verse 2. If Abraham were justified by works, he would have something to glory of, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. It was counted to him for righteousness. David, in verse 6, even as David described the righteousness of the man or the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness without works. There is a righteousness without works. And I feel so sorry for all the people who are devoted members of their particular religion and who are trying so hard and th- those are the people that really uh, affect me. That really touches my heartstrings. When I see a person who is so devotedly involved in their religion, and they are sincerely and honestly trying to fulfill a- and complete everything that is required of them in that religion. And why are they doing it? They're doing it in the hopes that they're going to get to heaven. They-, they think they're on the stairway to heaven. They're working their way up. They're doing everything. It's not going to be for any lack of effort on their part. But when you read the book of Hebrews, he talks about how the blood of Christ can cleanse or purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Works, works for salvation are dead. They go nowhere. They earn no merit. And if they could earn merit, then we would have to say it was a waste of the blood of Christ for him to come down and die on the cross. If I could earn my salvation by doing things, then there was no need for Jesus to come and die on the cross. To him who does not work, but believes. And so you have a choice here in Romans 4 and verse 5. You have a choice between working and believing. But he's very clear, and when you come to the book of Galatians, he hammers that point home again, that works and grace do not mix. It's like trying to mix oil and, and water. They do not mix. Those two do not go together. They, they, they can't be blended together to work out our salvation. It doesn't happen that way. We're saved, he says here, not by works. To him who does not work. And the first thing that God requires in Romans chapter 4 and verse 5 is not to work. You've got to give up on that idea. And you have to repent, not just of sins and things you know that were wicked and wrong and displeasing to God and distasteful to society. Not just that, but even to repent of the sin of false religion and of putting your trust in rites and ceremonies and sacraments and things that God has not ordained in His Word by which you're trying to earn some grace, obtain some grace, some merit, some favor from God. Beautify yourself before God. Make yourself attractive to God. Earn your way into his company, into his fellowship by proving that you're sincere and hardworking. All of those things go directly against 
what God has said. I think I told you the story before of a man, a gospel preacher, way back. This would have been when I was just four or five years old, but I heard it by older men who told me the story. Uh, he would uh, stop at a gas station from time to time, and they'd fill up his tank, and then he would ask the man for directions to some place he was going. He said, I'd like to ask you for directions to another place. Could you tell me the way to heaven? And he said, invariably, they'd either uh, curse at him or turn and walk off, or they would try to explain to him the way to heaven. And in that part of the country, there are a lot of religious people. And uh, so they would invariably try to explain to him the way to heaven, and they would tell him what he had to do and keep the Ten Commandments, and pray, and be good to your neighbor, and you know the golden rule, do unto others before they die. Ah, no, uh, do unto a <laughs> That's a golden rule in other parts. <laughs> do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So they would tell him all these things, and then he would get this angry look on his face, and he would say, Man, I asked you to tell me the way to heaven, and you told me the direct way to hell. And then he would start to preach the gospel to them right there at the gas station. I don't know if you could get away with that anymore. But back in those days, maybe they were the good old days. But that's it. If you try to work your way to heaven, the only place you can get by working your way is to hell. That's the only place you can get. It is the direct way to hell. He says to him who does not work. You see, God doesn't want us to work. He's already done a work God has. And when he finished it, he said it was finished. And he now wants us to trust in what he has done. And when a person busies themselves doing and trying and reaching up and trying to go forward, it's like they're saying to God, well, thank you, that was really nice, but that's not enough. Or that was a nice thought you had, but I'm going to do this. It's really a way of treating with disdain, of, of um, not appreciating and not valuing the work of Christ on the cross. And because we cannot be saved by works, but by grace, we should be the happiest people in the world. But you know, it's a terrible thing. People get caught up in this and their religion and they're proud of it and the years they've been in it and how well they know it. And the priest begins to recite his part in Mass and he says, and they stand up and say, now we're going to say the penitential act. And before nobody's even looking in their prayer book or missile, they're all saying it by memory. They all know it by heart, what the priest says and what they have to say and when to stand up and when to sit down and all of these things. And people memorize the hymns and the hymn books and the, and the denominational churches and they go and sing the hymns and amen, brother. And they dutifully get out their money and put it in the offering plate and a lot of them think they're working their way to heaven. They're good, upstanding church members. The Lord says, don't work, trust. Don't work, trust. See, we're not talking now, don't misunderstand me, we're not talking about Christian service. Just forget about Christian service right now because we're not talking about that tonight. We're not talking about that tonight. We're talking about salvation. And there is no room for works in salvation. God's method of dealing with us is not on the basis of sacraments, not on the basis of works, not on the basis of sincerity, of self-reform or self-improvement. His basis of dealing with us is grace, unmerited favor. Or as someone said, they use an acronym for the word grace. It's nice. I don't think it's a totally complete definition, but it's nice. It says grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's unmerited favor. We don't pay anything for it. 
but it costs God everything. Because it's grace and unmerited favor from God, it doesn't mean it's cheap. And it isn't cheap. It costs God the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross at Calvary. And we should never forget that. Titus 3.5 Not by works of righteousness which you have done, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Not by works of righteousness. Grace is the method of God with man. And because of that, I say, we should be the happiest people on earth. Because that means we're secure. If it depended on me, then there would always be a question mark, wouldn't there? There would always be a danger that in a minute or around the corner or a year from now or in some situation, I could do something or say something that would put in jeopardy everything that I have received from the Lord and that there would be no security of salvation. And some people object when we say this and they say, well, but aren't you uh, making it, aren't you creating a dangerous condition by telling people they're completely saved in the hands of the Lord? Aren't you tempting people to go and sin? Aren't you just telling people, well, it doesn't matter how you live. You just go out since you're safe in the arms of Jesus. You just go out and do whatever you want to because just like you've been telling them, brother, they can't be lost. They can't be lost. So just go out and like we say in Spain, viva la pepa. Go out and party. Do whatever you want to. Who cares? You know what? People who have come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and realize what it costs God to save them, they don't want to do that. My sins, not the nails, but my sins were the things that put Jesus on the cross. And every time I think about them, I'm ashamed and sorry. Now, why would I want to keep doing that? If I've really been convicted that I'm a sinner and that my sin cost Jesus Christ his life on the cross at Calvary, if I really believe that, why would I want to turn around and go out and sin and do something to displease him again? Of course, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to do that. And I don't want to do that. And when a Christian does sin, in the book of John, 1 John tells us that if we say we haven't sinned, we lie. If we say there's no sin in us. But when we sin, God disciplines us, doesn't he? See, God has... He gives us eternal security. We can't be lost. But then as one preacher said in the South, but God has his woodshed. Now, I don't know if all of you know what I hear you laughing. Some of you know what the woodshed is, don't you? You know, back in the old days, and they take them out behind the house, and they go back behind the woodshed, and they get out a a stick, and they bend them over, and uh, they raise the temperature a little bit. Take them out to the woodshed. So there is eternal security for every believer in Christ. But don't think that that means that you can feel free to sin because it doesn't mean that. And if you think it means that, then I wonder if you've really understood what salvation is all about. And of course, when we do sin, the Lord corrects us. Hebrews 12 tells us, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Every son that he receives into his family, he chastens and he corrects us. The only people who are without chastening in the family of God are the bastards. And I use that word because that's the word the scripture uses. The people who are not his children, who don't belong to him. They might be in a general sense in the house, in the sense that they're in Christendom, that they're in Christian churches, that they say they're Christians, but they're not real members of the family of God. Because every son that the Lord receives, he chastens. Every child of the Lord, if he steps out of line, he says, therefore, if you are not chastened, if you have no chastening, then you're not sons, he says. And there's a lesson in this. We don't have time to go into that tonight. There's a lesson in this for us as Christian parents, isn't there? And it's not, I'm not going to discipline my children. I'm just going to love them. 
Where do we get these twisted ideas? I, I, where did I get them? Never mind where you got them. I'm thinking about how I had to get my thinking straightened out about that. See, we, we have everything divided up. Here's the love department over here, and here's the chastening or the discipline department over here. And the Lord says every son he loves, he chastens. He puts the two together. It's one thing to, to chasten or to correct somebody because you're angry or embarrassed about what they did. You're upset about it. And it's just an emotional reaction. And it's another thing to correct them because you love them and you want to see that behavior corrected for their own good. Not because they're an embarrassment to the family. And you're not correcting them in anger. You're upset, but you're upset for them and for what it's doing to them. That's different. You know when the, excuse me, I'm going to stay on this point here for a minute and then we'll come back. You know when a lady finds, uh, my wife finds a stain and I told you about how when I eat spaghetti, sometimes I stain my shirt. And I'm sure when I get home after this trip, she's going to go through my clothes and wash them. And one of them is going to have a stain in it somewhere. Some, some shirt or pair of pants or something. Inevitably, there's a stain I bring home with me somewhere. Mustard, ketchup, spaghetti, sauce. I don't know what it's going to be. And, that, and I need her to take care of me in that sense, too. Because she and um, our brother here got the tag off of the back of my shirt tonight. Remember, what did it say, 1634? I never look at the back of my shirt. I got this shirt. Brother Adel got it for me. I put it on and buttoned it up in the front. I never knew it was in the back. But my wife, she's always uh, giving me a little review before I go out the door. Look at me over. Uh, put your zipper up. Tie your shoe. Button your collar. I don't know what it is. You get to a certain point in life, you just start forgetting those details, you know. Uh, comb your hair, dear. What hair? <laughs> it's pathetic, isn't it? Stains. And when we have a stain and the wife gets it out, she does it this way. She puts a little soap or stain remover on it and she rubs it and she runs it under the water and she rinses it off and then she holds it up and she looks at it. Uh-huh. It's not gone yet. Well, then she just throws it in the ironing basket and says, well, I tried. I don't know too many women who do that. You want to see a woman get her back up and get her strong will out, a lot of them, you just show her a stain and tell her that she can't get it out. And you'll see, boy, they have more recipes than Carter has pills for how to, for how to get stains out. This one uses lemon juice. Anybody here use lemon juice? A lot of people go to the stores now and they buy these little bottles of who knows what it is, nuclear stain remover. I don't know what. No, but a lot of these women have recipes for this. And they just refuse to give up until they get that stain out. So we're, I haven't forgotten what we're talking about. We're, talking, we're having a little excursus here on discipline. You see, and Christian discipline is for the purpose of correcting misbehavior. It's not simply the assessment of a penalty for wrongdoing. Now, there is that. The wages of sin is death. There is a penalty. And there are things that carry a penalty. And the penalty and suffering the penalty is a way of reminding us of what it costs to do wrong. And it helps us to remember. And it helps us to count the cost before we do it again. But you see, the purpose of it is corrective. When we're talking about chastening and discipline in the family and in the family of God. It's for the purpose of correcting. The Lord has eternal security for all true believers. But the Lord has his woodshed. See, And as Christian parents... And it might not be a literal woodshed, but I'll tell you this. If correction is for the purpose of correcting, then after the corrective action has been applied, you hold it up to the light and you see if the stain is gone. You see if it's gone. 
You put them back in the situation, you see what happened. And if it's still there, well, then you've got to rub on it a little bit more. And you've got to try another one of those recipes. You've got to get out the lemon juice or whatever. You've got to keep working until it's gone. Because the purpose of, of the action is to cleanse the stain, is to get rid of it. See? That's why the Lord chastens us. He doesn't do it because he's angry at us. He doesn't do it to get even with us. He doesn't do it because he's embarrassed about us. He does it because he loves us. And he wants to see our lives improved and created. You know that a lot of Christians who don't like to be chastened, they don't judge themselves. And they don't want anybody else to. And they live in a little uh, capsule. They don't want anybody to get into their life and help them or suggest anything or point out anything. And when they come to hear the teaching of the Word, boy, they got all their shields up, you know, their uh, force fields. All their defenses are up, lest anything get in and touch anything in their lives. It is so frustrating to the purposes of God for a person to live that way. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Don't you want him to love you? Don't you want to let the Lord love you? Then get your hands down. Get your guard down. Turn off your force fields and your defense shields. And just say, Lord, speak to me. You have complete liberty to speak to me and to touch my life. You paid for me with the blood of Christ at Calvary. Do whatever you want with me. How come is it we can trust him to save us, but we can't trust him to run our lives? (laughs) I don't know. We're really crazy, aren't we? The grace of God, we're talking about the third pillar of salvation. The grace of God as a pillar of of salvation is the basis of our salvation means that it doesn't depend on us and because it doesn't depend on us we can't be lost and that's why in Romans 11:29 we read although it's talking there in context about Israel we have this wonderful verse and it says for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable they're irrevocable the gifts and calling of God and in the context that's applied to the nation of Israel But you have to remember that the rule of context shouldn't be abused. The abuse of the rule of context is to restrict the meaning of a particular passage and the application of a particular passage only to that context. It's like viewing down a rifle barrel, that little teeny dot of light that you can see. That's the only situation, the only person, place, or time that that can be applied. And that's the abuse of the rule of context. See, we don't do that. We say... The Bible says in Romans 11:29, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. There he's speaking about the nation of Israel and how Israel has a future. And how one day they're going to be brought back in as a nation. They'll be converted and they'll be blessed. And God is going to carry out all of his plans. Messiah is going to come. The kingdom is going to be set up. All of those things are going to be fulfilled because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God uh, took Israel as a nation. He made them his people. He brought them into a relationship with him. him. He made promises to them. He called them as his own, and he's never going to turn back from that. Boy, I'll tell you, the United Nations and a lot of other people in this world better learn that Israel has a future because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That doesn't mean that as far as the modern state of Israel goes, we have to approve and applaud everything they do. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that one day God is going to fulfill his word to those people. He's going to bring them back into the place of blessing, and they're going to be his. He made them a promise, and he cannot break his promises. Okay, that's the context. 
But the, the abuse of the rule of context would be to restrict that principle stated there only to Israel. See, we can't do that. Because the verse says, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. It's talking in a general sense about the gifts and calling of God. But what he's doing is taking this general principle that's applicable in many places outside of Israel, and he's focusing it down on the nation of Israel. Why can't Israel be lost? And why is Israel going to have a future? Why? Because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, and we're applying that principle to them. It's just like when I was a boy, I used to take that magnifying glass and go out in the backyard. I'm sure I'm the only person here who ever did that. And I don't know if it's my friends or I can't blame it on my brother because I think I taught it to him. Uh, but at any rate, uh, we figured out if you moved it back and forward, at some point you reached a place where the sunlight focused into a little teeny tiny red or reddish whitish dot. And then it started smoking. And we could set a leaf on fire or set pine straw on fire. And boy, we just thought that was great. We were the nastiest little pyromaniacs. I know Mike's going to come after me after the meeting. I never burned anything down, Mike. Don't worry. <clears throat> but we did um, try to chase around a few ants with that beam, you know, things like that. We were a handful, I tell you. But you see, when you take all of that sunlight that's going all over the world, it's giving light to the plants and to people, it's causing the clouds to grow, it's changing the temperatures. All over the, all that sunlight is doing all that good, and you're just taking it and focusing it down on one particular point. That's the application of a verse, of a principle of the scriptures. But we would never limit the sunlight, all of the sunlight that's coming toward Earth. We would never put out the light everywhere else in Earth and only have the sunlight going to that little dot on that ant, and everything else would be black. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? That's like the abuse of the rule of context. You see, we have a rule here. We have a, a principle stated of God's dealings with men. When God gives a gift and when God gives a call, when God calls and when he enters into a relationship with someone, that's not revocable. God doesn't say one thing one day and the next day say something else. He doesn't turn around. There's not any fine print. He's not tricking people. It's not void where prohibited by law. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And that's because God's dealings with us are on the basis of grace. Brother and sister, if those dealings with God were on the basis of our behavior and our merit, we would all be in trouble. I'd be the first one to have to be taken off the list. I'm not perfect. But God deals with me on the basis of grace. And he deals with you on the basis of grace. And when a person places their trust repentant, they place their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, for forgiveness of sin and eternal life. God gives it to them. It's a gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's not revocable. That's a pillar of salvation, the grace of God. Then we come to the fourth one, and we've got to hurry because I'm making you stay too long. The sufficiency of Christ's work. The sufficiency of Christ's work. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Hebrews 7, 25. The Lord says, or it is said here of the Lord, Wherefore he is able to save completely those who come to God by him, seeing that he lives forever to make intercession for them, or because he lives forever to make intercession for them. 
our salvation and the security of our salvation depends upon the sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ. When he died for us on the cross at Calvary, he did everything that needed to be done in order to save us completely. And in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, it tells us that that's exactly what he's able to do. The, the priests in the Old Testament couldn't save anyone. And they were many times offering sacrifices over and over for sins, but those, those sacrifices never finally saved anyone. They never finally forgave anyone for all of their sins. Those sacrifices covered sins, confessed, and dealt with up to that point in life, but that's all. They never really brought the person into a place where their conscience, where their inner person rested confidently in the salvation of God. There was always something else to be done. And those priests, they had a problem, didn't they? They had a little problem. They kept dying. Verse 23. There truly were many priests because they were not allowed to continue by reason of death. It was kind of hard to continue offering the sacrifice if you were dead. Uh, your uh, Johanan, the, the priest, he's not here anymore. Why not? He died. Oh. And who took his place? Another priest. I don't know that one. I always went to him. Isn't it wonderful to have a priest that never dies? And you see... Chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews, well, we don't have time for this now. But chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews, the Lord shows us there how they took away the Old Testament priesthood. All the Levites and the high priest, all of those men who stood between God and man and offered the sacrifices. They ministered, they served in the tabernacle. And God took them all away. And he put something else in their place. And what was it? What was it? Was it the Orthodox Church? Was it the Roman Catholic Church? Was it the Evangelical Church? What did he put in the place of all those priests in the Old Testament? The only thing he put in the place of the priesthood when he took it away was Jesus Christ. That's all. And you see we have in the Scriptures the place where God established those priests in the Old Testament. And we have in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 7 the place where he did away with those priests. Where he did away with their priesthood. And the only thing he put in the place of it was not another priesthood, a cast of men standing between man and God and representing. He never did that again. That has never been established again. The only thing he put in the place of it is Jesus Christ. And he says in in this chapter that this man continues in verse 24. This man, because he continues forever or lives forevermore, has an unchangeable priesthood. So you see, in order to get past Christ and to, and to raise up another human priesthood, another caste or, or group office of priests on earth interceding between God and man, first of all, you have to do away with Christ. Because you're, you're asking them to take his place. God gave that place to him. And his priesthood is unchangeable and he lives forever. So I don't know how they're ever going to annul it. So all the other priests are usurpers. They're in a place that God has never given to them. We can show you in the scriptures where God gave it to the Levites. And we can show you in the scriptures where God took it away from the Levites. And where he gave it to his son Jesus Christ. But oops, careful, when he gave it to his son Jesus Christ, he said it was unchangeable. And that was forever. He never gave it back to man. Never did. Christ's death is sufficient. He's the one who's able to save completely those who come to God by him. Not to God, not to Jesus by Mary, and not to God by Mary, and to God by the saints, and to God by the sacraments, and to God by the church, to God by Jesus. 
He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Years ago when the Pope came to Spain, last time he came to Spain, the the youth, the young people of Santiago de Compostela in, in Spain, which is on the west coast of Spain in Galicia, they put up these huge signs. They paid for it themselves. They raised money and they put up these huge uh, signs by the road all over the country uh, to honor the visit of the Pope. And it said on there, in English translating, it said, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. John 14, 6. That was really something, wasn't it? Of course, they couldn't finish the verse. Now you see, I'm not just picking a fight with them. I'm telling the truth. They couldn't finish the verse because if they finished the verse, there wouldn't be any need for the Pope to come to Spain. I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, said Christ. So there is no pontifex maximus, the maximum bridge or link or mediator between heaven and earth. That's Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way. Peter, who's said to be the first pope, he said in Acts 4.12, that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's no other name. He's the only way. John said it. Paul said it. How many of the apostles do we have to quote before we give in and say, that's what God's Word says. The the sufficiency of the death of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? That by, it says in Hebrews 10 and verse 14, by one offering, He has perfected forever those who are sanctified. That's why He sat down. There were no chairs in the tabernacle and no chairs in the temple. The priest, it says uh, in these verses here, in verse 11, it says the priests were always standing. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering many times the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But not the Lord Jesus. This man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Because his work is finished. The priest's work was never finished because they never took away sins. They could never be done with it because their sacrifices that they offered were never sufficient to take away the sins. But the sacrifice that Christ offered was finished and is not continued and is not perpetuated because the Lord Jesus, once he offered that sacrifice, did not remain, as the Catholic Catechism says, in an attitude of oblation or sacrifice before God. He didn't remain there, and he doesn't remain there, not mystically, not spiritually. The Scripture says that after he offered that sacrifice on the cross of Calvary, he sat down at the right hand of God. And what's he doing? He's waiting. He's expecting, waiting for the time when his enemies will be made his footstool. Well, you know, this is a wonderful truth. And people who are devout practicers, uh, practicants of religion around the world need to get hold of this truth. The Lord Jesus has done it all. Stop trying and start trusting. Believe in him. Trust in him. He did it all and he's able to save you completely. You don't need a system. You don't need sacrifices. You don't need steps to nirvana or steps to salvation or steps to anything. The Lord Jesus did it all. The sufficiency of the work of Christ. And the last place, we have the love of God. Romans chapter 8. We're secure because God's word says we are. 
because God's power keeps us, because God's grace is his method of dealing with us, because the work of Christ is sufficient and he is sufficient for us to save us completely. But we're also safe and secure forever because nothing can separate us from the love of God. God has set his love on us when we didn't deserve it. So what can we do to undeserve it? We didn't deserve it in the first place. And he says here in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is the rhetorical question, of course, to which Paul already knows the answer. But the questions that come up in the scriptures are for the purpose of causing us to think and to reflect on the subject that he's bringing up. And so one of the rules of Bible study is that whenever you find a question in the Bible, you answer it. You don't go on to to other passages until you answer the question that's been asked there. So we, we should learn that, and we ought to have that. If we haven't talked about that before, we ought to have that as a ground rule of Bible study among us. Whenever you find a question in the Bible, you answer it. And if you don't know the answer, you look for it. You find the answer. You don't just dismiss it and go on. So here comes the answer. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. None of those things can separate us from the love of Christ. And not only that, he says in verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature. He's saying, and if there's anything else I've forgotten, that too, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, read my lips, nothing. It's that simple and it's that clear. The message is, oh, but what about if I commit? Oh, no, don't ask me about a sin. Oh, but what about? No, don't ask me about a situation. The Lord said nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. But, 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 some people are real motorboats, you know. But, 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 but what about this? But what about, what about? No, and I say, but what about what God said? What about what God said? He said nothing. Read my lips. Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Of God, from the love of Christ. He looks for it here. And the answer to the question is nothing. What can separate us? Nothing. Ah, but the question is, are you in there? Are you in the family of God? Are you one of those people that has entered into that loving relationship with him? If you are, you are the safest and securest person on the face of the earth and in all the universe tonight. Put your head on your pillow tonight. And don't have a bad dream or a nervous thought. Just close your eyes and thank the Lord and go to sleep. You're in his hands. You're in his hands. You know, in the Old Testament, the high priest, when he uh, was wearing his garments for duty, he had these stones that were on his, uh, they were on like shoulder boards. He wore them. You know, you really should. I don't know if all of you read the Old Testament, but you should. It's two-thirds of the Bible. And the New Testament is based on it. You're never really going to understand a lot of things in the New Testament if you don't read the Old Testament. You know, So you read these things, and then later on you find, when I first read it, I didn't know what it meant or what it was for. But later on, as you think about it and you go over, you start coming into the good of it. You start realizing as you grow what it means. He wore these shoulder boards, and they had 
stones, uh, six precious stones on each shoulder board, and they had the names of the tribes of Israel on them. Six tribes here, one, one name of one tribe on each stone, and on the other side, the other six. And then he had this thing called the, the breastplate. It was, a, or it was a kind of a thing that hung over and had a strap here, and it was like a board of some kind made here, and it had 12 stones on it there. And these stones hung right here over his heart. And they had the names of the tribes of Israel on them. And so when the high priest took, put on this, uh, this garment and he went about his duties as a priest there in the tabernacle of the temple, when he went into that holy place, he's carrying the names of the tribes of the children of Israel on his shoulders, the place of his strength, and on his heart, the place of his affection when he goes into the temple. And he goes into the tower. And he goes into that place which is the dwelling place of God. And in there, he's carrying our names, they said. The high priest went in there. He's representing us. He's taking our names in there with him. And in the New Testament, we read that Jesus Christ is our high priest forever. And you know what? He's got your name with him in heaven. You can't be any safer than that. You can't be any more secure than that. He's just like that high priest of Israel. He's got your name on the place of his strength. He's got your name on the place of his affection. He loves you. And with all of his power, he's taking care of you as a precious possession of his. William Blaine wrote this poem. He said about my name. He said, though humble and obscure below, my name is there in heaven. I know. Tis written by the hand of God. Tis written with the Savior's blood. Twas there before the day and night in beams of God's unerring light. By Jesus' blood was crimson dyed when he for me was crucified. Who would erase it from that page, unsoiled by sin, undimmed by age, must Calvary's marks from him efface and change eternal truth and grace. Tis there by Jesus' worth alone. For worth or merit have I none, and nothing less than sin in him can ever that inscription dim. Tis ever there, O oh sweet the thought, the space it fills by blood was bought. Tis there by grace, tis there by right, unsullied in the Father's sight. Though I such love so feebly serve, and daily more than death deserve, by oath, by blood, by priestly care, my worthless name, he Keepeth there. Let such as know no second birth labor to write their name on earth. My joy is this that grace divine, that love divine on heaven's page has written mine. Isn't that wonderful? And there was a man who appreciated his eternal security. And I hope you do too. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, this evening. Our hearts are filled with love and admiration, with wonder as we think about the person and the work of Christ. What a wonderful Savior we have. And what a wonderful salvation you have given to us. A gift without fine print and without any expiration date. No trickery on your part. And you call upon us to love you and to trust you, to place all of our trust in you and to rest in you. We thank you for the salvation that has been bought for us by the blood of Christ at Calvary. We thank you that he carries our names in heaven with him and that we are as secure as he is at the right hand of the throne on high. And we just pray that you would 
impress these truths upon our heart. And if there anyone has been doubting or struggling with these things, you would give them that peace that comes from knowing that they belong to the one who will never let them go. And we just ask you to bless us and lead us on as we pray and as we dismiss ourselves now. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen.